you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahim the commander Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, The men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records, and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste, We make it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahim the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now, 
the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, uh, g'day again everyone here and uh, those perhaps uh, watching at home. I want to start with a word this morning and it's revival. Revival. Uh, revival literally means coming to life again. It's something that was dead and it's something that is now alive. Uh, if you were here over the last few weeks of the book of Ezra as we began this series, you'll know that something that was dead has come alive. The Jewish people, God's people, had been exiled from their land of Israel for 70 years in captivity in Babylon. City was destroyed, temple ruined. The last three chapters, we've seen that God has brought about a revival, a coming to life. People's hearts have been stirred from the king of the Persian Empire to the hearts of 50,000 Jewish people, and they have come back on that long journey back into the land of Israel. If you hear last week, you saw they, they laid the foundation, they were united together, and they had a huge party when that was done. That's revival. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I love reading about revivals. They're wonderful moves of God. If you, if you like a bit of history, as I do, you might have heard of the Welsh Revival, uh, which was so impacting that it actually impacted the economy of Wales because no longer um, did the horses understand the language that was being used to get them to move because too many of, the, of their owners became Christian. They stopped profanity and the horses didn't understand any more what was being said. Uh, maybe you think about the Great Awakening that took place in the 18th century in England and the United States. Uh, maybe even you know about the 1905 revivals here in, here in Geelong, Melbourne, Victoria. Revivals are amazing things. God's power is suddenly on the move. Have you experienced revival? Uh, if you are a Christian this morning, the answer is yes, you have. You've experienced perhaps the most glorious revival. Your heart's been, which was dead, has been made alive by God's power. God's power has moved in your life. You've been changed. You've been born again. That's revival. You've been made alive. If you're a Christian this morning, yes, you've experienced revival. If you're not a Christian here this morning, great to have you. Love you to experience that same revival today. Go to the Alpha Course. That's, that's part of why we gather here because Jesus is beautiful and real and relevant and he brings life where there's death. Revival. 
Uh, maybe, has anyone, I know some people in our church actually have, but maybe I won't ask this question, but, but few of us perhaps have seen revival where God is doing this simultaneously amongst a lot of people that we relate to. I actually know some of us have. Um, I have seen and been part of a mini revival. Um, it was absolutely incredible. Um, some of you will know that um, before coming here, I worked as a, a chaplain to the recruits at Kapuka. Um, which is the army training center where they go through basic training as they begin their, their journeys as soldiers. And I posted there 13 years ago. And for the first year, with the other chaplains, I worked hard, you know, getting alongside the, the recruits. I, I, I preached sermons on Sunday with all of my heart and as, as, as the recruits gathered. And the result, the impact, the change, zero, that I could see anyway. Very, very little. And then in the second year, one ordinary Sunday in February, everything changed. In that service, I had the opportunity, as I'd done before, to ask people who wanted to come and meet the Lord Jesus to come up the front, and three people did. The next Sunday, it was seven. The one after that, 15. And then for the next three years, almost every single Sunday, young men and young women came to know Jesus for the first time. In fact, on one Sunday, there was 33 of them in one Sunday morning. It happened week after week. I didn't do anything differently, but suddenly now God was there, and He showed up in power. And it wasn't just on the Sundays. Um, my favorite story was a, um, a platoon, which is the, the, the training uh, unit at, at Kapuka, and that, so many so many of that platoon had become Christians uh, during their time at Kapuka that they decided that they would get up before Revali at six o'clock and they'd have a half an hour of prayer and worship together uh, before the day started. And if you haven't, yeah, this maybe you may go, oh, that happens in my workplace too. Uh, I have not seen that, especially that time and in the army context. It was phenomenal. But one of the most encouraging things was that there were so many uh, recruits coming alive that they would continually request that I would come in in the evenings and go into their accommodation lines, their barracks, where late in the evening, that you know, around between 9 and, and 10 o'clock in the evening, they'd often have an hour's free time, and I would go and open the Bible and, and try to listen to their questions and take them to places in the Bible. But, but over, the, over the years, it ended up being 564 uh, recruits in these studies, way too many for me, so I was able to actually get in other offices, um, Christian officers on the base to come in and help lead these studies. It was incredible what God was doing. He was on the move. Things were changing. Now, I don't know if you've seen that or not, but, but you can imagine that when God starts to move in that kind of power, it's exciting, um, it's encouraging, things are coming alive, it seems irresistible. But the Holy Spirit's got something that I think He wants to speak to us about God's work of revival this morning, and we heard it read in Ezra chapter 4, and it is disturbing what we see. I don't know what you thought when you heard that Bible reading this morning, but it's disturbing. Because you know what it describes? It describes the pushback. It describes the opposition. It describes in very blunt terms, resistance. So let's look at it together. It's there for a reason. And uh, we'll look at that opposition firstly, then we'll consider why it's recorded, what it means. So firstly, what is the opposition. Well, the Holy Spirit gives us the first one, and it's in verse 1. Uh, you heard it read. I'll just 
I'll read again. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let's build, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. We worship the same God, they say. Many hands make light work. Let us join in. Seems like, wow, God's even reviving work is continuing. Even these guys want to get in on it which is why verse 3 comes as such a shock. Did you hear that response? It's flat. It's blunt. It seems intolerant and it seems narrow. This is what it says. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. What's going on here? Why, Why won't they accept that these guys want to help? They worship the same God. Are they drawing some kind of artificial lines around God's work in reviving and building again? The answer is no, and you have to understand the context to see why. So who are these adversaries? Uh, These adversaries are the ones who came into the land of Israel when the Israelites got kicked out, got exiled. These were the ones that were deported from their original uh, um, lands and brought into the land of Israel. Now, do they worship God? Yes, actually. They do. They have come to worship the God of the land that they live in, but it's a compromised worship. And this is how we know it's compromised because uh, the, the, the biblical book of, of Second Kings tells us in chapter 17, it says this, of them. But every nation still made gods of its own. And they put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. So these people who'd come in, they've got a bit of religion. But it's shallow. And it's mixed. They're worshipping God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. But they're also worshipping the gods that they used to in their own land. It's syncretism. A bit of this and a bit of that all sort of melded together. It's a compromised faith. It's a compromised religion. And what you see here in their approach is indirect opposition. It's opposition that's cloaked in terms of support. But opposition to revival, it most certainly is. Because it wants to draw God's people into a compromised worship. Now, believe it or not, uh, this is a temptation which continues to this day. Uh, I'm, being, I'm, I'm being sort of lighthearted there because it's an overwhelmingly big temptation. Uh, so you think about it, say, well, you know, look, we all worship the same God. And, you know, religion is just kind of a, it's a catch-all phrase. And in the end, we all worship the same God. We're all, we're all going to the same place. There's salvation in all the different religions. So let's just not be too hard in drawing boundaries here and there. That's narrow and it's intolerant. Let, let's, let's embrace other religions. Or maybe uh, an even more subtle danger. What about, what about those who say, yes, we're Christians, but they no longer believe what the Bible teaches and describes as Christianity actually being, and they introduce other things into it, and, and they end up being like the Samaritans were long ago and saying they worship God, but actually they encourage people to live lifestyles and and follow behaviors that the Bible calls are sinful. 
but they still say they're Christians. So we've got to accept at face value what they say, don't we? No, we don't. No, we don't. A Christian is one who, who stands on God's word and, and follows God's ways. A Christian is someone who is revived from the inside out. And one of the great tragedies in our world today are there are many people who own the name of Christian but have no understanding of what that means or the power in it. And there are others who, who are actually false teachers. They want to say they are, they are Christians, but what they're encouraging people to do by their teaching is destructive of all of true Christianity, which is a, a life with God, before God, set on fire by His Spirit. This is a very big, and it's a subtle, but it's an enormous temptation. It's, it's, like, it's like the in Afghanistan, one of the most terrible things I think that the Russians used to do, I don't want to Russian bash this morning, but one of the terrible things that they would do was they would drop munitions, which were, which were actually bombs, but they were children's toys. And they would drop them because they knew that the little kids would play with them and would lose hands and feet. This kind of indirect opposition is like that. It's, it's, it's a lolly that's laced with cyanide. It looks good, it looks appealing, but if you eat it, it will destroy authentic worship. The response of the Jews here seems harsh and, and unyielding, and it is. You've got no part in this. But when we see Jesus teaching on how to respond to this, we see he says, it's better that, that if you cause one of these little ones to, of mine to stumble, better that you had a millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown into the depths of the sea. The Apostle John says, if you embrace the work of false teachers, if you welcome them in, then you share in the false teaching of these people who corrupt the worship of God. The New Testament book of Jude compares this kind of thing to gangrene in a body. And when, if you've got gangrene in your body, I never have, thankfully, I hope you haven't either, but you know if you've got gangrene, what is required is not accommodation and band-aids, what's required is amputation. This is serious. This is indirect opposition coming against God's people, coming against God's people today, and it needs to be resisted, even though the resistance itself will often appear intolerant and narrow. And I actually think Jesus models for us himself how this is to happen. Uh, you might know in John chapter 4 that Jesus encounters a woman who's a descendant of these adversaries. Uh, she's a Samaritan woman. And she has, he has, she has that wonderful encounter with Jesus at the well. And it's, you know, just thinking of the way the chosen presents is enough to make me tear up. If you haven't seen it, you should. Um, it's, it's a really, really powerful, it's a wonderful moment. And, um, and we tend to focus in on the fact that Jesus meets her where she is, and he does, and it's beautiful. That Jesus welcomes her in, someone who's an outsider, someone who's a Samaritan, someone who's, who's apart from the, the salvation. And, and we're right to see that, and we're right to embrace that, but it's also true when you look at that, what happens in John chapter 4, that Jesus is totally uncompromising about her faith. This is what he says in John chapter 4, 22. He says, you worship what you do not know, he says to that Samaritan woman. You worship what you don't know. You're worshiping in ignorance. And he goes on more than that, and then he says, we worship, that's the Jews, we worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus says to this woman who's, who's caught up in, in kind of a hybrid religion, a bit of this, he says, what you are believing is corrupt. It won't save you. 
Worship, um, salvation comes from the Jews. Here's the true salvation message, and then he points to himself. And he treats her with dignity and respect and love and grace, but with unyielding, uncompromising focus on the reality of the gospel. And I think he sets the standard for how we are to resist, as Christians today, the indirect opposition that comes by seeking to dilute and to compromise and to, and to dilute to the extent the gospel that it no longer saves. That's the first thing we see in indirect opposition. It's the, it's the carrot, the carrot in the, in the velvet glove, maybe. No, that's the iron fist in there. We're going to see now the iron fist. That's my next point. Forget that. Uh, the iron fist is the second approach, and this is direct opposition. Not indirect opposition, but full-on direct opposition, and we see it come in the form of persecution. Uh, we look at it, verse 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counsels against them to frustrate their purpose. It's direct opposition. They're going to make that work stop. And they use persecution to achieve it. Now, I wonder if you can imagine what that was like for, say, Joshua. And maybe, he got, maybe he got home from work one day and there was a note in his mailbox saying, you show up to the temple building construction site again tomorrow and you might come home to find that your house is burnt to the ground and your kids are dead. Or, or maybe Zerubbabel gets a brick through the window with a note in it in the middle of the night. You know, or maybe Cadmiel, one of the other leaders, is, is going home on the freeway after work and he gets pulled over by the corrupt, tra corrupt traffic cop who's been bribed to actually trump up some charges and put him in jail for a couple of days. You know, obviously, that, I'm thinking in, the, in how it could look for us, but this is direct persecution. It's bribery, it's discouragement, it's intimidation, it's attempting to, to stop the work of God in revival by direct means. Now, um, the reality is, for some of you who have experiences of other parts of the world, this is exactly what still happens. Exactly. Corruption, direct persecution, intimidation, threats of violence, death, which are sometimes carried out. For us in Australia, this is, is not the case most of the time, overwhelmingly not the case most of the time, but, but opposition still comes, and when it comes, it's direct and it's fierce. So let's, let me give you a purely hypothetical example. Uh, let's say there was a, a church in a little city somewhere that started, uh, it had been shrinking, getting smaller, it came, started to come alive, there were new people coming, uh, there was cars parked, there was noise of Sunday worship, um, there was all sorts of things happening. And let's say purely hypothetically um, that every week there was a complaint made to the council about this church, yeah, that, that every week there was uh, threats of legal action, that in the end the church had to hire lawyers and had to end up showing up en masse at a Geelong council meeting, hypothetically, to try and say that this is not fair. Now, those of you who are fairly new to the church are someone who's been around a while. Um, that kind of thing is direct opposition. Uh, if, if those of you, most of us, we are residents of the state of Victoria, suppression bill, that is direct opposition, direct persecution, direct attack. That sort of thing happens. And what's the result of this in Ezra chapter 4? The opposition comes, it's direct, it's firm, it's fierce. What happens? Well, we're told it's discouragement and fear. Our God's people who've been caught up in the middle of revival, joy, hope, enthusiasm, optimism, become discouraged and afraid. 
That is still what happens in the face of direct opposition if God's people are not careful. Discouragement and fear. That the cost for being part of God's reviving work is increased. The risks are increased. No longer can you just go along with the flow. You're singled out. There's going to be a cost if you will follow faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ's work in His world. It's discouraging. It it makes you afraid. I heard a statistic this week from the Barna Research Research Group, which sort of does um, research, particularly in America, but also across the Western world, and and their uh, research revealed that that this, since January this year, uh, 42% of pastors in the U.S. have considered seriously resignation from their position, 42% in this year alone. Now, I understand why they would feel that. I understand why that, that discouragement and, and, uh, and fear could be motivating that kind of things because it's been incredibly difficult years. You know, you ask and dream big things of God, you long to see growth and things happen, and yet there's direct opposition. Um, you, <laughs> maybe you knew that, know that in your own faith. I think it's fair to say that it's been, if, you've been, if you're an older Christian, I think you would agree with me, that it's harder to be a Christian now in Australia than it has ever been in your lifetime, because, because of the direct opposition, and, and because of, of the way it works out in your life, and your workplace, and in your family, and, in your, and the, those that you chat to, there's, there's, being a Christian is not an easy thing, it never was, but now it's very much something where you are encountering the opposition of the culture around you, and sometimes that can move across from just the, you know, just the jokes, and the, you know, in, into more direct persecution. So, um, chapter 4 makes it clear that this stick of persecution continued against those Jews who were rebuilding the temple for decades. So chronologically, Ezra chapter 4 covers a large period of time, and it's showing that on multiple reigns of multiple kings, the opposition and the resistance against God's work continued. All right, so carrot of compromise, stick of opposition, and now the bitter acid of slander and political maneuvering. This is what happens in the book of Ezra, political maneuvering and slander. So uh, we heard that whole reading read. Um, Verses 7 to 23 of of, um, Ezra chapter 4 are a really masterful act of slander and political maneuvering. So the adversaries in the land get together and they they craft a a group email. You can imagine what it would have been like. And uh, they basically, it's dripping with sympathy and support for the king. Of Persia, and, and basically they say, you, you know how these Jews are rebuilding their temple and stuff? Well, you are allowing a slow-moving train wreck if you let this keep going, because, you know, do some searches historically, these guys are rebellious, and if you let this keep going, they're going to hit your treasury, they're going to stop paying tax, that, that'll get through to political leaders, still does, they're going to stop paying tax, and they're probably going to revolt. Such a clever letter this is, because it it speaks to the cultural moment of their world, because when this letter was written, Artaxerxes was the Persian emperor. Now, those of you who like history know, who who, who, who likes a marathon? No, not me. Okay. Who knows about the marathon, right? So, marathon uh, was the battle where the the Greeks beat the Persians, and that marathon runner got there to give the good news and then died. You know, so that's, that's what, now, that was Artaxerxes, right? He was on the losing side. They've been losing battles at Thermopylae. They've been losing marathon battles. Um, the, the army, they're getting pushed back by the Greeks. 
and they've got, and that's hit the treasury, it's costing a lot of money, and they've got revolts at home, and in this cultural moment, this letter comes from Jerusalem saying, you want more trouble? Just keep doing what you're doing. Now, now what happens? He, 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 he's like, what? You know, like, what are these Jews doing? Stop, stop, stop. And he sends the letter back, and he, he says, stop. Now, it's slander. It's slander, because who told the Jews to go and rebuild their temple? The Persian emperor. They're operating under legal constraints. They're doing what the government has told them to do. They're doing it in a way that they're actually, God has stirred up the government to permit them to allow to do this. Um, but this slander says, no. They're insurgents. They're going to kick you out. It's very, very clever. And let me tell you that political maneuvering and slander are still two of the greatest attempts or greatest opposition against God's work of revival in the world. Let me go back to the suppression bill, right? I don't know if you, I don't want to rabbit on about this all the time, but it's just a significant piece of legislation. And when that legislation was coming in, you know, I read the stuff and I read the debates in Parliament and, and it was poised like this. You know that those Christians out there are completely destroying the lives of people who are same-sex attracted and, and gender dysphoric. You know, they, they've got shock treatment in their churches. You know, that like, you know, like they're, they're trying to force people to change. They're bullying, you know, like they're, they're running all sorts of weird camps and, and we've we got to act to stop them. Now, I've been a pastor for for a long time. I don't know a single Christian pastor who is doing any of those things. And what about the shock treatment? Like, when did the church ever do that? The state did it. You guys were doing it. And now you're saying that, we, you know, like, it's crafted in such a way that the maneuvering and, and the, at the end of it, you go, how could you not vote for this? We've got to stop those Christians. We've got to stop this because this is, this, these guys are out of control. It's just not true. It's slander. And it's a political maneuvering, and what we see here in this chapter uh, 4 of Ezra is that the opposition or the opponents of God's work are adept politically. They're cleverer than we are, and they're happy to use slander, and they're going to use the state apparatus to get their results. And that's what we see in Ezra chapter 4. Slander sticks. Um, remember, the, I told you about that revival at Kapuka? and the wonderful things that God was doing. Well, after a period of time, inevitably, the resistance came. And when it came, it was fierce. Uh, the first one was, was kind of funny, but it was serious at the time. Um, I got called in uh, before the commandant at Kapuka, and an accusation was made that he had received a formal complaint that I was uh, abusing the Bible in my teaching. I don't think I'm abusing the Bible. How's that so? Anyway, it, it turned out what had happened was uh, the Sunday services at that time were so packed that the recruits would sit on the floor, if you imagine this, like every seat taken and the recruits are sitting on the floor and at the front. And, um, and what had happened was I'd asked one of the recruits who'd become a Christian if he'd do the Bible reading for me and um, I was standing here and he was like third row back and I'm like, I'm never going to get to him because all the people are, are sitting in the floor. So I picked up my Bible and I threw it to him uh, and he caught it and he stood up and he read it and he sat down, and I thought nothing of it, but unfortunately, there had been a, a minister of another denomination who'd been present in that service and said that was disrespect for the Word of God. And, and he, look, I know that particular guy in that denomination, he doesn't believe the Word of God, he doesn't teach it, but he was upset that I threw it. And, and so that was, I had to explain that, you know, I did hold and respect the Word of God. The second um, opposition was far fiercer. I was called in and was told that, um, that I'd been... Uh, 
proselytizing by force, uh, forcing people to come to these studies in the evenings, uh, these recruits, and that I'd been uh, bringing in people who were not ordained ministers, not the reverend stuff, and therefore couldn't be trusted with anything, and uh, I'd been bringing in them to help in the work, and uh, that uh, we'd actually been um, uh, forcing people of other religions to attend, and that, those are complete and utter lies. Slander, none of those things was true, but it stuck, and the commandant said, studies will cease immediately. I said, but so, this is, no. Clever. Political maneuvering, opposition, we experience it and we see it uh, in the world in which we live, and we see it also in our Christian lives. You know what it's like, uh, perhaps if you're a Christian, you become a Christian, and then, you know, people will slander you. They'll say things about you that are not true. Oh, you're a bigot. You don't really love people. You know, you're all about being kind of the moral police and bashing people on the head who don't agree with you. You know, you're a Bible basher. You know, you're just like the Crusades. You would have been on, you know, all of those things, and it comes subtly, but it comes truthfully. And it's always been the case. You know, I think I shared recently, you know, one of the reasons that Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire was because people said that when they meet together, they drink the blood of babies. And, and that they, they all kiss each other with a holy kiss and call one brothers and sisters, so they're all into incest. Like, these guys are a moral, a moral, you know, deviants. They've got to be stopped. Slander. But it sticks. So you see, we see these three forms of direct, indirect and direct opposition. And now, as we move to a, a close, as important as we do to recognize that it works, so I don't know if you, you, you saw at the end of a letter what happens, the king goes, stop no more reconstruction, the letter goes to the adversaries in Jerusalem, they show up with military force, and it says by power and force they compel it to stop. Ten years, it stops completely. They seem, the adversaries, to be completely successful in stopping the work of God's revival. I like, like to put a good, good spin on it, but that's chapter four of Ezra. It works, the opposition succeeds. So, as I move to a close, I want to ask two questions now. Why is this recorded in the Bible? Why did the Holy Spirit cause Ezra chapter 4 to be written? And then as we do that and linked with it, I'm going to ask, what might it mean for us today? I've already shared some ways I think there's, there's opposition, but what might it mean for us today? So two things. Firstly, why did the Holy Spirit cause it to be written? Because it happened, right? Because this is a historical record. I've really enjoyed this week um, or the last few weeks um, connecting with, with a, a lecturer in this area, um, a, a historian, and, and just, just seeing how much historical evidence there is. There's actual Cyrus's letter has been found. Oh, it's a, it's a clay thing. But, you know, so much, it happened. This all happened. That's why it's there. It's recorded. It's history. But why did the Holy Spirit cause it to be recorded? Because I think it's pretty clear we should expect it. So this is recorded, and it feels like a defeat, because that is the reality of God's work in the world through His people in revival from then all the way through to the end of time. There'll be resistance, there'll be opposition, and it's much better to be prepared for that to be surprised when it comes. I remember a couple of weeks ago in First Peter, Peter says, don't be surprised at what's going on to you as if something strange is happening to you. Peter says, you should know this is happening. Read the Bible. This is what, and, and you say, as a Christian, in my Christian walk, it's really hard being a Christian. Yes. <laughs> what did you expect? 
Well, someone told me I'd get wealthy and healthy and wise, and I'd never have any problems until I went to heaven. No. Which Bible are you reading? You know, uh, this, this, this is recorded for us because we need a realistic understanding. If you're going to go, my son Ethan's joining the army at the moment, and if he goes, I'm going to join the army, and it's going to be free education, and it's going to be wonderful three meals a day, and, uh, and I'm going to have good leave and holidays, and why wouldn't you join the army? That's all it is. You're in for a pretty bad shock. So it's better to know what you're going into and what to expect, and the book of Ezra does that. Many other parts of the Bible do too. Resistance is not something that I don't think any of us welcome. We should pray against it. We should pray for, 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 uh, for God to show us grace and give us revival. But resistance is inevitable. Sooner or later, we don't welcome it, but it's inevitable. So secondly, and this is a more deeper question, why does God allow it? Uh, couldn't God just go, boom, temple rebuilt, Worship to me occurring again in Jerusalem, walls rebuilt, you know, the, the Hollywood movie style, you know, everyone salutes at the end, and it's all, it's all great, you know, why not? Why, why does God allow this sort of stuff? You know, why, why does He allow the opposition where church plants fail? Why does He allow the opposition where, where maybe you, you'll be able to, to share the good news of Jesus with someone in your workplace, and then the pushback happens and they distance themselves from you. Why does God allow these things so often to happen? Why is cross-cultural ministry work so, so difficult? Why, why, did, why did God allow COVID and vaccine mandates and the immense distraction that that caused for the work of God to happen? He could have stopped it. Why didn't he? Good questions, aren't they? Now, aside from the answer, which I think is perhaps the best, is which I don't know. Um, I don't know why God does this. I don't know. And I think we've got to be careful in saying that we know exactly all these things. We do ever see in the Bible some principles. Uh, number one, that, that God allows the devil real power to work in his world for a period of time. You know, we live in a world where God's uh, wisdom permits a very serious adversary who is under, under all this work that's going on here, make no mistake, all this opposition, he stands behind it. You know, read the book of Daniel. And you see the, the extent of his opposition. God answers the prayers of his people, sends help, but the help's delayed. Why is it delayed? Because demonic powers opposed it. There's a real struggle. That's, that's part of it. Um, another is that God grows us through direct and indirect opposition. Uh, you know that personally, don't you? You know, when your faith is pressed and you endure, you grow. You put down deeper roots. Your shallow faith that you have when you first begin become something that's deeper and stronger and richer. You know that's how we work, so, and that's how God works in His church. Um, I was reminded just, just recently that you know, the, the church grew throughout the world to become the biggest profession of, of faith on this planet. Billions of people became Christians, not because the Christians were so good with apologetic arguments, you know, writing essays and blogging and you know, attacking the neo-atheists. And the, it, it wasn't because of that. You know what it was? Because of the way they suffered, because the Roman Empire saw over centuries that the more Christians they put to death and tortured, um, the more that the Christians blessed them and prayed for them, and the more the Christians died with joy, and, and they went like, we can't understand that. You know, I, I live for money, and you've lost all, all yours, 
how can you be like this? I live for approval and, and you've lost all your pariahs. How can you live like this? And the answer is that the authentic faith. You know, opposition and persecution and pushback, it grows us. We don't want it, but it does grow us. That's, that's another reason. But, but the best, greatest answer, I think, after I don't know, is that God will bring in the end good through it. That His glory will be bigger through that than it would have been. Our good will be more than it would have been if none of that had ever happened. You see, the devil must have rejoiced in Ezra chapter 4, hasn't he? Achieved a wonderful victory. But God is serenely unconcerned. Uh, Remember that the readers of, of Ezra, they knew the end of this story. This is written to them in another time of persecution and opposition. This is recorded that they would, would see what God had done in the past. God's as concerned about them as a, as a mighty battleship is concerned about a whole bunch of battle, paddle borders as it, as it cruises through the ocean. God's got his plans. He's working them out. And he thinks not in terms of days and hours. He thinks in terms of centuries. Um, it may be that you and I are, are living in a period where opposition to God and His work and to revival is going to continue to intensify. Maybe we're living in, in a time here in Australia when, when we will join what the majority of Christians in the world now face for being Christians. Direct persecution. Maybe we are. Maybe we're not. Maybe it'll turn again and there'll be another wonderful revival. I don't know. God's sovereign, not me. But I do know that if either of those things will happen, God's plan will continue. He will not fail. His kingdom will not be defeated. We know how the book ends. After many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, New Testament says. So what are we called to do as I finish? Why did the Spirit record it for us? Because we need to persevere. Because we must not become discouraged and fearful as they did. We need to persevere. We need to continue. We need to keep wanting to plant. You know, if, if you're going to have a big vision to plant 50 churches in 10 cities, which we have, you're going to expect opposition. And when it comes, you know, you, we've got to not just go back into our shells and, and give up because things are difficult. We've got to keep pressing on. In your Christian faith, you know that what you are living and what you've entrusted to God is going to be kept in His keeping until the proper time. The sacrifices that you've made, whether they've been seen or unseen, the way that you've lived in your family, and maybe sometimes the, the, the conflict and struggle that that's brought you, in the end, it's going to be worthwhile. Persevere. Continue to give of yourself. Continue to press into God, even if everyone else presses away. Continue to follow God. And I'm speaking to myself here because it's easy to be discouraged. Keep pressing on towards the goal. Whether the wind is, is blowing a gale at your back and pushing you along or blowing a gale into your face and blowing you backwards. Don't give up. Persevere. Preach the word in season and out of season, as it says, uh, as Paul says to Timothy. When everyone's in favor of it, when everyone's against it, keep pressing in because you know as we look at the Scriptures that this is the norm for God's people. Um, as I close, I, uh, at the start of this year, I, I really felt Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Some of you might have been there back in January, just sitting, as we set our goals this year as a church, and thanks guys, where we, where we press into, 
I want to close um, with, I think, the biggest thing we need to do as we, we consider Ezra chapter 4 and we look the reality of Christian life in the face, and it's this. This is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This, this is the bit that I want us to think of, though. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Look at Jesus. Look at the opposition he endured. And he brought the greatest revival in this planet's history. Did it come easy for him? Oh, no. He endured opposition from within, temptations to compromise. He endured opposition from without, direct persecution that ended up him being sent to the cross in an act of injustice and corruption. He says, look at him. Look at him. What opposition did he endure from sinful man? Is your, is your opposition that strong? Even if it is, think about him because he endured the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him. The joy that he has now achieved and the joy he calls us into. So church, uh, as we, we finish today, it's a heavy passage. Um, I don't know why I seem to get these heavy passages, but it's a heavy passage. But there's an encouragement in it. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's do that as we finish our time together by singing. But if you're in the midst of that struggle personally, be encouraged. God knows you. He loves you. And remember, his plans will come to pass in your life, in our church, and in the world in which we live. Have faith. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for your word in Ezra. There's opposition, Lord, but we know the end of the story. We know what you're doing because we look to Jesus Christ. We know that many trials and tribulations are between us and God's kingdom. So, Lord, help us to have backbone. Help us to, help, would you strengthen our weak knees that tend to crumble and our, and our heads which tend to be bowed under the pressure? And would you give us the supernatural empowering to continue to run the race until its very end? And, Lord, if, if someone here this morning, that's so personal for them, something they're struggling with, Lord, may they know your comfort and your peace through your word and through your spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.